evening group and welcome back to our second session in our spring equip class. This is our week two of our starting point lecture, but it is our second week in our 21 days of prayer. And today our prayer focus is corporate grace. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 and it goes as follows. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There are three words that I'd like to focus on really briefly. Grace, mercy, and then confidence. The word tells us that with confidence we need to draw near. To the throne. Now, the only reason that we have this confidence, folks, isn't because we have a VIP pass or season pass to heaven. Oh, no. But that's only through Christ. Jesus Christ is the means by which we can exploit our confidence to God. And it's only because Christ, as the Son of God, has covered our sins. So we can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of of grace. The throne of grace is a way to describe God's throne and the idea that grace is a characteristic of, of the throne of God is indicative in the fact that we can with confidence draw close to the throne because it is Christ, death, burial, and resurrection that gives us the ability to do it. And it is with grace that God has given us salvation, not of our own merit. And lastly, that we may find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need, that you may receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. So we are in desperate need of mercy and grace today. These are tough times that we're in. And as we go out into the world, we'll find a lot of things, but no mercy and no grace. And so let us understand that God is the source of our mercy and grace. His throne is a throne of grace. And we may receive mercy and grace as we go to Him. So as we get ready to begin with our third week of equip, and as our church continues in corporate prayer, let us go to the Lord now and thank Him for the corporate grace we have. Father God, I thank You that as we pray for our church, we have the ability to with confidence draw near to your throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, and we are here now asking that you help us. We are in a time of need in our spiritual components, in our physical places, but also in our finances, Lord, and so forth, and in our social needs. Lord, we need you desperately. So I pray that you would be with us as we go through our 21 days of prayer helping us to get ready for Easter. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, welcome again to our second week of Equipped. It's been a lot of fun, um, at least for me as I go through the content, and I've been um, kind of corresponding with a few of you online, and uh, it's always been a lot of fun for me to kind of communicate that way and just to interact with people. And so I appreciate those of you who have taken a time to do that. And uh, I would encourage you to continue to do so, um, so that you can um, just find a little bit of um, encouragement and perhaps even some accountability in these sessions. So I wanted to begin by um, a little bit of housekeeping. Next week, 
is our Easter midweek service, and we will not be meeting in this room, okay? So just keep that in mind. The following week is our prayer service. We will be meeting back in this room, but we will not be going through starting point. We'll be going through, and we'll be led by a couple elders in a, um, in a prayer gathering, okay? So please um, be advised. Next week is our Easter midweek service. We will meet in the worship center on Easter as a, um, or excuse me, the worship center next Wednesday corporately as a body of Christ. And then the following week, we'll meet in the fellowship room here for our gathering um, of prayer. And as we get ready to, um, to roll into the Easter season, I really think that this second session of our starting point um, lesson is really going to be beneficial to some of us because it's going to really, well, I would say all of us, not some of us, because it will put our focus on spiritual formation. So before we talk about spiritual formation, I'd like to begin with just a brief illustration that's something that I think we can at least um, identify with. So this past weekend was the uh, NCAA championship and some of you um, didn't go to church because you were still in mourning apparently, but uh, North Carolina, UNC, lost by three points to Kansas in the championship game. And it's really interesting when you watch sports at that high level because you can see the work ethic of these players who've been preparing for their entire lives pay off. And so in basketball, you know, obviously no one can just be a bench rider. Everyone needs to have um, the skill set to step in, either if you're a starter or if you're one of the backups or whatever, um, to be able to play the game and play it at a high level. And the same is for us in Christianity. Just like there are people who are um, have different positions in, in the basketball league or in basketball games, some are point guards, some are centers, and so forth. Well, in Christianity, we all have different roles that we play. But just like basketball players need to understand how to make layups and dribble the ball and pass and all those things, we have fundamental practices that we as Christians need to be able to um, to exercise and grow in. And that's what spiritual formation is. It is growing in our everyday necessity traits um, of the spiritual life. We were created to be image bearers of God to the world by declaring God's glory. And the only way that we can do that is by growing and strengthening our spiritual lives. But we understand also that God created us for that purpose. And if you've been around for all of 24 seconds as a Christian, you understand also that sin came in and did some damage to that opportunity. And so if you remember last week, we talked a lot about just the mission of God and sin interrupting that. And Christ came through and made it so that we can all get through this together. And so we still have sin present with us. Christ did come and give us grace and save us. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but God, I love those two words, but God, because there's a whole lot of things that you can say about me, but God. There's a whole lot of stuff that I've done, but God. There's a whole lot of stuff that you've done, but God. This world is in a mess, but God. I know a whole lot of pastors who are a mess, but God. You understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Going back to the text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 read, But God, in His grace, saved us, not by the works we've done, but because of His loving kindness. It's not us. There's nothing that we could have ever done. 
None of us can, can go around talking and boasting about our salvation because it's Christ who has done it all. And we talked about this in, in week one, so just kind of a, a brief review as we get started. Even when we've been saved by Jesus, the work, however, of sin and that battle still goes on. And we know this um, if we look in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we understand that, that we must continue to focus and develop our traits, our spiritual disciplines, our spiritual development, the, the, the component of our lives that enable us to walk out the Christian life. That is something that we must continue to work on. In your books, you have a personal response opportunity. So if you haven't already done that, if you haven't been doing those prior to class, I would encourage you to do so. Don't consider it homework because I'm not going to grade it or look at it or anything like that. But it really enables us to go through these lessons in a way that stimulates thought before we meet. Because some of this stuff, man, like you really got to think through, right? Like if you just Let's use this question, for example. How is the growth and development in the Christian life like learning a skill or a hobby? How is it different? Why are these differences important? These are things that we kind of meditate on throughout the week. And so hopefully you've had some time to think of that question in your response. And we're going to talk a little bit more about um, some of those things at the end of our class and our discussion time. There are typically three different ways that folks think of spiritual formation whenever we say that word. Um, and well, those three typical, those three ways are typically wrong. And so I'll just give you kind of the common uh, misconceptions um, or the misperce uh, misperceptions about spiritual formation. Way one, um, or the first type of, of perspective on spiritual formation, is that it's, uh, it's kind of for those who are going around doing things in order to gain merit for themselves and uh, um, look holy. So these are people who go around doing all the good things who are first in line at this event and first in line to sign up for this thing and the other so forth. And they do all these things because they think that's what spiritual people should do. That's what Christian people should do. We should do a lot of um, spiritual looking things. And they consider that spiritual formation. I'll call these kind of your public Christians. They're the ones with the big smiles on their face. They're the ones who, honestly, if you look at them, they act like they ain't never sinned in their life. Um, everything's always good, right? I had a guy that I used to um, minister to in the jail back in PG County, and he would always say, I'm too blessed to be stressed, Pastor, too blessed to be stressed. I'm like, brother, you're in, you're in jail right now. Are you really that blessed? But he was. He was happy, and he was blessed. Um, obviously, he's not <laughs> going around trying to rack up good favor. But these are the people who are trying their best to do good only because they're trying to cover up something in, in their private life, right? These are people who have shame, some type of guilt that they're trying to overcome. So to overcome that shame and guilt, they go around and doing all the right things or the good things, or maybe they've had a failure in their past 10, 15, 20 years ago, something that happened in their childhood. I don't know, but whatever it is, they're trying to overcome it by doing good Things. These folks are destined for failure because of out of their own works and their own ability, they're trying to live out a Christian life. It's not going to happen. Eventually, they will cave in. The second type of um, or the second model that we typically see when it comes to spiritual formation are the ones who think that they are um, mature and spiritually developed and they're kind of like above other people, right? 
Uh, these are the ones who are like, well, you know, at least I'm not like that person or I don't sin like them. You know, these are kind of the proud Christians and they, they get a lot of information. They love Bible studies and they love these things here that we meet and they love going to church and soaking up the information. And the more they learn, it's like the more puffed up they get and they think they know it, like they've got it figured out, but they're missing the point of mercy and grace. And so these are what I would consider your proud Christians. And it, it, it goes without saying that they too will ultimately fail. The last type that we typically run into are um, the Christians who seem to think that spiritual formation is only for your superstar Christians. I would call these guys your bench rider Christians, okay? So bench rider Christians are the ones who, you know, they'll do enough. They'll come here and there. They'll support here and there. They do this and that. But for the most part, they're not really trying to go out and, and conquer the world for Jesus. They're very content and doing very little to nothing in terms of the mission of God because they feel that their focus should be on whatever it is in their life that takes the priority, be it softball, be it whatever. I, I can fill in a thousand different examples of things that people do. And But the real work of evangelism and outreach and stuff like that goes to those guys with the collars or those gals who are, who are on fire for Jesus and so forth. Well, those are called the bench rider Christians. And I'm sure if we're honest, we have either some of those types here now or we at some point in our faith have been those types. All three of them are wrong and all of those are inadequate understandings of what it means to be a mature Christian in a proper spiritual formation um, uh, mindset or proper um, execution or demonstration of spiritual formation in your life. Spiritual formation helps us fulfill God's mission in our lives. And without it, Christian character, our competencies, all of these things, we are unable to accomplish the mission of God. We're just not able to do it. It is essential that we have true spiritual growth and spiritual formation within our personal lives. Now, we're not talking the church. I'm talking just you, one-on-one -on -one Christian. There's a link between spiritual formation and God's mission that we really have to understand. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, we read that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of your visitation. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Peter gives us four statements, or I would consider them adjectives, when it comes to describing who we are. We are chosen, we are royal, we are holy, and we are His. And I wish I had more time to really break each of those down. My eight-year-old daughter, and I know my kids, they, all, they get mad whenever I bring them up and I'm preaching or if I'm teaching or something like that, and I always mention them, but it's, it's kind of like what well, my life essentially is comprised of with four kids. But anyway, my eight-year-old the other day, we're talking about 
um, what it means to be holy. And I and she said, well, you know, well, I'm not holy, Daddy. And I'm like, well, baby, um, if you love God and you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then He has called us to be holy as He is holy. We are holy. We are His workmanship, and we are His vessels here on this earth, which makes us holy. He has consecrated us through His blood. So for a second, just consider yourselves holy. Know that God has set you aside for special use. That's what holy means. Anyway, I'll get off that soapbox for a second here. Um, And all of this is only done through Christ. The only way that we're chosen, royal, holy, and that we are His possessive is through Christ. Do you think of yourself in these terms? Like, do you think of yourself as holy? Do you think of yourself as a royal person? Do you think of yourself as chosen? Do you think of yourself as His? We have to think about those things. I'll be honest with you. um, My experience is that typically most of us don't. These are things that are given to us as the people of God to help us to proclaim the glory of God, and that is our mission. The only way that we have those uh, categories or those adjectives or those labels perhaps are for us to be on this earth and to proclaim His mission, to proclaim His glory, to proclaim His excellence all over this earth. And how is this mission accomplished? Well, we have to have honorable conduct, our behavior, should be above reproach. I love that term in the military. Someone said, as long as you're above reproach, no one will ever mess with you. Typically not going to happen. Someone's going to mess with you anyway, especially if you're above above reproach. Um, But you need to have holiness. These are the tools that we need to help declare our witness to the people um, that are out in the world. And sin somehow finds its way in the midst of our lives. So how does sin hinder our mission, our ability to go out and preach and proclaim and glorify God. Peter's language is reminiscent of the words that Moses spoke when he gave the law initially to Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, we read, Now if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession. Out of the peoples, out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is God speaking through Moses. And Peter really borrowed from Moses' idea of us being a royal people of priests set apart for God's work that we may glorify him in heaven. God did not call Israel to be holy, to earn his favor. He'd already demonstrated his love for them and redeemed them from slavery. They were already redeemed. He still gave them this title without them having to have done anything. God did all the work. He wasn't calling them for holiness for their sake. He was calling them for his sake. His goal was to make them a light in all of the nations. In a dark place, he needed them to be the light so that all people could see their light and draw others to him. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, we read that God's telling his people to be a light for the nations, 
to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the one central purpose of the law. The law is intended to be a um, to give us the ability to. Well, let me let me rephrase that. The law was given to us that we may act differently and then shine God's glory into the world. Right now, we know also that it is impossible to follow these concepts, these laws without Christ. So God knew that we needed help and he sent Jesus for us. He let us know that without him, we could never fulfill the law. But Christ came that we may have the ability to fulfill the law so that other people can look at us and say, that's what God's people should look like. We get a lot of criticism in the church, but I'll tell you right now that we are the light in a dark place. We are God's people that shine bright into this dark world. And without us, this world will be a lot darker. Take that as a, a charge, but take that also as a passion that you have to represent God and to be his light in this world. Our obedience and understanding of the law is what it means to fulfill God's mission. Jesus talked about these things in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said that you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Glorify your Father in heaven. We are to light a beacon of hope to this world through our actions. But before we can get to the actions, we have to first deal with the sin issue, the heart issue, which First Peter tries to kind of uh, cue us into. You see, in the, the Beatitudes or in the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, Jesus goes through and he talks about the heart issue and how the heart is really the issue of sin, right? There's murder, but really in your heart, there's anger. There's adultery that we're out there committing, but really in our heart, there's lust. Like we're not at the point where we as people can follow out God's mission through our actions if we don't first deal with our heart. Our hearts are the root of the problems. Think about your life currently. What heart conditions or actions hinder you from fulfilling God's mission in your life? We often lack the maturity and obedience required to point people to glorify God because of the heart issue, because the issue of sin in our lives. If spiritual formation is necessary, then what areas should this target? What areas of our lives should it target? Well, the curriculum here has identified three focus areas of development, or at least uh, maybe not areas of development, but areas that we need to just focus on, I would say, in order for us to understand spiritual formation. And they are the heart, the head, and the hands. Matthew chapter 15, verse 18 and 19 says, But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, 
and this defiles the man. From the heart comes evil, thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and blasphemies. So we know that the first place that we have to start focusing on is our heart. Jesus is the best cardiologist that I know. No one else can deal with issues of the heart like my Jesus can. Trust me, I've been there. Godly actions result from a new heart that's been placed in us. From the heart, we see that the Spirit of God, once we are saved and once we acknowledge and accept Christ as Savior, then God's Spirit comes inside of us. And not only does He work on our heart, but we begin, like Romans 12:1 says, to transform our minds. So then we have a conversion of our heart first. Our thoughts are made different. And this is why it's really important for us to understand Scripture, because as we transform our minds, or as the Holy Spirit transforms our minds, we begin to think differently. We can meditate on Scripture, and it'll help us to focus our attention in certain places. But from our head then becomes our behaviors our actions, the things that we do. And this is typically what seems like the point that we should focus on. There's an event, there's something bad that happens that we do. And then, oops, I made this mistake. Now I need to go back and fix it and do a bunch of other things. No, 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 no. You've done something bad with your hands or whatever the, the physical component of your sin is only because there's a heart issue. We have to start with the heart. Typically, we'll start with the hands. Folks, I'm asking you today, I don't know where you are in your spiritual formation. I would beseech you, start right now with your heart. Let God work on your heart. Let Him soften your heart. So then your mind can shift and then your actions will follow. Authentic formation will culminate in the change of actions that result in a transformed heart and a head that believes God's truth. Our actions are linked to the mission of God. Our obedience is also linked to joy. It first starts with our heart getting worked on and our head and our mind gets right. And then that results in an action. That action leads to missional opportunities. Those missional opportunities is us responding in obedience to God in our neighborhood, in our pharmacy, wherever we are. Remember back to week one. And then there's a joy that comes from that obedience. That's what most of us really do ministry for because of the joy that comes out of it. I can do this for free. I would do it for free, but thank you, church, for paying me. I got a family, right? But it gives us the ability to have joy in what we do. Joy is really the focus. Joy is the goal. I want everyone of you to know the joy of serving God. If you serve God begrudgingly, without joy, I want you to step back. I want you to step back because God wants us to serve and enjoy Him out of a cheerful heart. We can be used by God to point others to saving faith when we have joy. We can invest our lives in a way that matters long after we're gone if we have joy. We experience freedom from shame and guilt that comes from living in known sin if we have joy. We can suffer with hope because we know that God is at work in ways that we can't see if we have joy. And finally, we can understand the power of God at work in our lives in fresh new waves if we have joy. 
in a second here, we're going to break down into our groups, our discussion groups. And I would ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to work on your heart so that you can get your mind right, so that your actions will follow, and then we can get you on mission for God in this world. Go ahead and break down now into your groups.